Suppose you were to read a book of fiction where a character was described as an atheist advocating that religion be taught in schools. Would you believe it? And a transgender lesbian declaring that people had the right to hate her, would you believe that? Well, this is not fictitious, but a reality. Today we will hear from perhaps one of the most controversial women in America, Camille Pallia. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and welcome to Watching America. On my life, watching America. On my life, it's panic in America. Oh, 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 oh. trouble in America. I consider myself transgender. I, I have never identified at all with being a woman. That is, the, in fact, the, that is the inspiration, really, of my work. Each sex has the right to define itself. I say that the freedom to love okay, must also be balanced by the freedom to hate. Anyone may express through words hate. It is when hate passes over into action that law should intervene. Merely expressing a negative opinion of gay people, for example, and I'm speaking as a lesbian, is not hate. I don't want special protections for, for gays or transgender. I'm saying there should be protections for all dissident speech. If thoughts were hues of color, then indeed my guest today would shoot colors all around. Camille Pallia is a prism of reason and insight, fashioning unexpected rays of perception that beguile, shock, and enlighten. In short, one is always arrested and tantalized by her pithy and exacting intellect. She is the Professor of Humanities and Media Studies at the University of Arts in Philadelphia, and she is also the writer of the following works, Free Women, Free Men, Sex, Gender and Feminism, Glittering Images, A Journey Through Art from Egypt to Star Wars, Break, Blow, Burn, Camille Pallia reads 43 of the world's best poems, The Birds, Vamps and Tramps, New Essays, Sex, Art and American Culture, Essays, and Sexual Personae, Art and Decadence, from Nafertiti to Emily Dickinson. She's also the author of her latest work called Provocations. Welcome, Camille. It's delightful to have you here. Well, thank you so much, Alan. I want to begin by uh, asking you to, if you will, convey the transition that you made from one world, if you will, first-generation Italian family growing up in New York State, to an awareness of self, which even manifested itself in Halloween costumes that you donned, and identification with women from Liz Taylor to Catherine Hepburn. 
Well, I, I have no idea how I developed this um, monomania or <laughs> this ability to be interested. I, I think there is possibly an art gene in Italian culture because even you know, my, my family came from the Italian farmlands you know, of, of um, central and southern Italy. Um, but uh, very, very early on, I, I, I you know, I was aware of this obsession with the visual coming from um, the St. Anthony of Padua Church in my uh, my native town of Endicott, New York, upstate New York, a factory town. And I was just obsessed with the statues, the stained glass windows, and so on. And I made absolutely no distinction between high art and popular culture. Because when I saw, for example, I must have been four or five when I saw Ava Gardner in Showboat in the theater downtown. And for, and for me, it was exactly the same thing. And was, I, so that, I think that's part of the um, overall uh, frame of my work is that I, I'm a culture critic and I, I, and I don't look down on popular culture. I see it as, a, as the contemporary expression of the fine arts. With your first work, um, it was rejected seven times, and I've, I've heard you speak of that, and there is a discernible twinge of pain even in the aftermath of all your great success. Does it still linger? Well, I think um, that it's a uh, you know that it's a uh, what can one say? It's a, hum- a humbling experience. I I, I have you know, I think Italians in general have an ability to to see things in, with, with a long view. Okay, in other words, I I saw that Emily Dickinson, for example, uh, the, a great genius, never got anything back <laughs> from her poetry. Or her just a few poems published, and they were monkeyed around with by editors and so on. So her her fame came like a century later. So I I would simply t- tell myself, perhaps it's a, perhaps it's a Catholic uh, ability to 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 be self analytic. Um, but you know, my, my sense was that you know my work would eventually find its own time and place. I might not be around to see that. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I felt that it was uh, ridiculous. I wasn't in scholarship okay, to you know for fame and fortune. Uh, that it's not the field one would choose. Uh, you know, for fortune certainly. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I think it's a. a Great lesson to people who are struggling against all odds and, and have constant frustrations and rejections and so on. That this enormous book, you know, was rejected seven times and suddenly exploded. I was 43 years old when finally I was published, and then all hell broke loose. And that's been the case for the last quarter century. Camille, you strike me in many ways as really innately being an artist, presenting yourself as an academic. Is that a misread on my part? Well, I, I think that my genre is uh, creative nonfiction. I, I do believe that what I do is uh, at the borderline. Okay, of um, that is I, that my my, I, I, my ability to redramatize uh, art or ideas in ways that are accessible to to the general audience. I think that that is a, a, a semi-artistic skill, you know, of, of some sort. But you know, it's interesting. I don't um, that fiction writers. Dislike me, okay? They, I mean, it's it's almost instinctive. It's happened repeatedly over my lifetime, because I, uh, when I began my career at Bennington College in in Vermont, and it's interesting. I mean, I I think fiction writers just immediately sense that in some way my me my work, and this was even before I was even published, that my sensibility in some way represents a threat to the to the genre of fiction, uh, because I I have in in essence uh, usurped it or taken it into, into my version of um, nonfiction. Norman Mailer years ago wrote The Executioner's Song, and um, that was uh, the, the beginning of this cross 
hybrid, if you will, of, of fiction and reality. Was that an influence on you at all, or did you totally loathe and reject that? No, well, Norman Mailer, in general, was uh, an influence on me. Uh, not not his novels, sorry, but the but the work he did uh, as a cultural commentator and political analyst, advertisements for myself. And so when I when I uh, you know came on the scene and uh, Susan Sontag said I was worse than Norman Mailer, thinking that was an insult. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Norman Mailer was to me a, a role model of a, a serious analyst of uh, you know contemporary events. So was it some consolation when? he was able to uh, swoop the interview with Madonna, that at least it went to him as opposed to someone else? Because I know you wanted it very much. No, it wasn't, it wasn't that I, I wanted it. It was that it was offered to me. <laughs> and um, the, um, you know, Madonna refused. Madonna refused repeated attempts of magazines to bring, bring us together. Penthouse magazine had tried to bring us together. Esquire had, had wanted a cover story. Uh, HBO had wanted to sit us down in front of cameras having dinner and do a kind of, you know, my dinner with Andre, you know, type thing. And, and, and she was, I think that because she had not uh, finished college, I mean, I think she had just a semester or two of college, I think that she felt as if I was going to be this big intellectual and, you know, in some way she'd be intimidated. That's so wrong. You know, I'm, I'm a kind of Joan Rivers personality. We would have gotten along fine. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's regrettable because I think, we, you know, I think we, we are very parallel sensibilities and Madonna has never gotten credit for what she did to, to uh, inspire that particular 1990s wave of pro-sex, you know, sex-positive feminism, because now the wave has totally receded without Madonna now, uh, uh, without Madonna's videos, uh, which were very groundbreaking at the time, and now we're, we're right back to the 1980s of you know, the anti-porn fanatics of uh, Andrew Dwork and Catherine McKinnon again, intrusive authoritarian commissars. We're back to that. Music has been a cardinal part of your life, and you've been able to uh, synthesize that into into your writing. But in your 30s, you were hanging out at CBGB's in, in New York City. Uh, and then you were absolutely entranced with uh, the works of David Bowie and Iggy Pop and what have you. And you wrote a very interesting piece, which I was able to enjoy in Britain for the Victorian Albert Museum uh, called Theatre and Gender, uh, an essay that you wrote, which is also included in your new book, Provocations, which is excellent. Let me have no uh, uh, absolute hesitation to recommend the book to all listeners. It's fabulous. It's the kind of book that you open it up and have a brave voice to which you agree and you go, yes, 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 yes. And if someone is in in another room, they may suspect that you're in some kind of ecstasy, but it is certainly an intellectual ecstasy. Um, How did you come to write that piece on David Bowie for the Victorian Albert Museum? Well, I was so thrilled to be invited to to write it. Um, it, my, my, it. It appears to have been Bowie who told them from you know from his shadowy uh, domicile in New York uh, to to ask me to to contribute the article on gender to the catalog, uh, which you know, of this exhibition of his costumes that went around the world. So the catalog has been translated into many languages, and I uh, you know I revere him enormously. I wanted to establish in my piece how how knowledgeable David. Bowie was about the arts. Absolutely. So I really ran down every possible reference that he he would make. You could see in the interviews I would find of him on YouTube, extending over decades, how whenever he would try to talk about the fine arts, that the interviewers 
had no interest, and therefore, um, you know, his his reflections on it were kind of truncated, aborted, by the, the failure of so many interviewers to allow him to really fill in his both intellectual and artistic heritage. I saw him in 1976 when he was doing the Thin White uh, Duke tour, which was right after the Diamond Dogs, which is my favorite album. And um, he began with Anshin Angelou, uh, Dali's and Brunel's uh, film, Arresting image of the slit eye and what have you and I couldn't believe it that a mainline artist and he had become pretty mainline although he was never fully mainline at least not until later works uh, that he would dare to do that but what he was doing was he was expanding if you will the, the, the con- concept of art and what a concert could be for an entire audience and I thought that when I read your piece it was the most succinct and well organized and well written um, uh, cover of his entirety of his career I mean you did a phenomenal job on that I was just absolutely blown away do you think that the the one genre of art leads to another? For instance, he for a long time studied with Lindsay Camp. He was interested in mime and what have you. And we saw that borne out with the kabuki thing he was doing on stage. Do you think had he lived longer beyond Black Star that he would have just continued in the in the same process? Or do you think he would have eventually regrettably have faded away? Well, you know, as one gets older, one 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 loses one's original you know, energy, <laughs> physical energy too. Uh, but I, th- I think his legacy is so enormous. I I don't I, I think one can complain. Okay, that that he that that he left us too soon. I mean, the the, the sheer volume of his work, and I I found it very moving. The um the, you know, how how deeply he has had an impact on a younger generation. Mm. I happen to have ca- caught the costume exhibition in Toronto, where I, where I was. Uh, to, to give a, a talk, and I was stunned. Okay, at the lo- the lines of people waiting to get into that exhibition, and how and how overwhelmingly they were young. You know, I often feel like kind of a a fossil, you know, of the 1960s, and Bowie's influence was in the early 1970s. But uh, it's it's amazing his ability to speak and have such international reach as well. He was, he was truly a global phenomenon, without question. This is Watching America. We'll be right back. You were a feminist before it was fashionable to be a feminist. Even uh, from your genesis as a little girl, you were, um, in a sense, cross-dressing as various Halloween characters. Uh, What gave you the gumption or the strong sense of self to even entertain wearing such costumes at the ages of six, seven, and eight, and nine? Well, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? That, I mean, with these pictures in provocations, there's a, a black and white copy of the color slide that my father took of me in my Napoleon costume at age eight. My parents constructed these things. It was absolutely unheard of. There were no girls running around as Napoleon. I was a Roman soldier. I was the Toreador from Carmen. And I was obsessed with these pictures that I saw in opera books or art books. Uh, my, my, and my parents are very you know, uh, skillful at, at constructing these, uh, th- these costumes. I, I have no idea. Where does that come from? It's obviously, it was something innate. My my my, my sense of uh, you know my sense of dissatisfaction with the, with the female role and my desire to telegraph you know my inner Napoleon. So all I can say it's like uh, that. I think you know it's like there are certain things that are innate, and I think that 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 was it. 
I was fascinated by uh, by your reference to your your grandmothers, who seemed to be both women with uh, with steel spines on the one hand, and yet very uh, able to, uh, if you will, become accustomed to what which is expected of them in a, in a time of uh, of reduced principal roles for women washing and donning clothing and things of this nature and you 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 speak rather well nostalgically about having been able to witness that was that part of your if you will um, strength of sense of self that helped you for instance to avoid doing destructive things like LSD in the 60s well, I think that you know, all four of my grandparents and my mother were born in Italy, so I act, and, they, and they came from the, the farmland. So I have had this unusual experience of, of direct contact with the old agrarian era and the kinds of women okay, who, who that era produced. They, they, I, I've written about this re- repeatedly um, recently in my work in the last few years about the, the country woman. Okay, the country women had physical strength. Big voices. They were they were in total charge of the world of women. Okay, and then, and then there was the world of men that was kind of completely separate. Right? And so I and then my, my my family came over and my grandfather worked in the, the shoe factory and the Cut Johnson shoe factory. So I I had that contact with the the new the industrial era, you know, of the industrial revolution. And then and then my my father was the only one of ten in, uh, siblings uh, to to go to college, and he eventually became a high school teacher and then a college teacher. So then I experienced the upper middle class professional realm. So I think that, that uh, this this multiple experience has really given me a great advantage in analyzing contemporary society. And fr- and from yes, those, those Italian women, they were fierce. The women of the countryside were absolutely fierce. Okay, uh, the, uh, uh, you were afraid of them. Okay, they would they could deafen you with, with uh, the, the loudness of their voices. They they, they would, could be tiny, all dressed in black, widows, you know, running around and so on. But they ruled. Okay? Young young women had no power whatever okay in that agrarian world it was the, it, you, you gained power as you got older so what i've been trying to get people to realize is that a lot of the complaints of uh, contemporary feminism okay about uh, it, are coming from the fact that there's a kind of bourgeois culture out there that it's bourgeois manners that women are suffering from with their with their soft voices and their their need for propriety and their desire for rules and everything to be governed you know for them et cetera et cetera and so i th- i think what's coming from me is this kind of barbaric yawp, you know, <laughs> of the of the old um, agrarian era, okay? which I think is really it's like tens of ten thousand years preceding that of this uh, very timid office bound period that we're in now. You have spoken about uh, first phase or second phase or first tier, second tier feminism. Uh, we've already established that you were feminist long before it was fashionable to be or even anyone had really coined a term for it. Uh, you make a big distinction between the types of Betty Friedan and Germaine Greer. Uh, and you've gone so far to say regarding Germaine Greer at one time that she is the woman or person, in fact, you most admire who is still living. Well, sometime back, as you were aware, on British television, she stopped... Um, the interviewer gobsmacked uh, by wading into a thick vat of controversy by stating that she didn't see cross-gender women as real women. And in turn, the BBC interviewer could not digest this thought or concept. And so she got an awful amount of backlash. Have you had a chance to speak to Jermaine Greer since that occurrence? 
No, no. I, I, I met her on. Uh, I saw her speak when I uh, back in maybe 1970, 71, uh, and I asked a question rather timidly from the audience. And then I met her briefly at at a social occasion in New York in 1992, I think it was. Okay, but otherwise I've had no contact with her. But yes, she is the the person, the living person I most admire in the world. I think she's phenomenal. Just a phenomenal figure who I think is going to you know, represent the new wave of of uh, women of the 20th century eventually. But uh, I, I, you know, I certainly have been fo- following the um, the controversy over uh, the, tr- the transgender issue, which has been particularly virulent in um, in England and among among British feminists, mm-hmm. with a little bit also with the Australian feminists. It, it, it has roiled things less in the U.S., but um, there's slow slow signs that uh, that uh, you know, that that the the protests by traditional feminists against you know, the transgender rights ways. It may be starting to form in the United States as well. I, I know that there are many feminists who feel that um, that the male-to-female transgender individuals right, are, are in, in essence, men <laughs> who are demanding men's rights and, and intruding into, um, into the hard-won women's spaces and uh, prerogatives. I identify as transgender myself, but I, I'm under no illusion okay, that I am really a man. I, so I I think that I think there's a lot of um there there's a lot of doctrinaire nonsense floating around this issue. I think I think we all can all agree that non-conforming individuals of of any kind. This is what I what I would argue. Non-conforming individuals I deserve civil rights protections like any other individual. But I don't think that anyone has the right to control what others think of you or what others say of you unless it is overtly libelous. So that, that's what, what I think. I think that every individual has the right of self-definition, the right to modify his or her body, should he or she wish. But you have no right to control the way I refer to you. You have no right to intrude upon uh, pronouns okay, that are the heritage of everyone in this great language that's come down to us in the Anglo-American tradition. So in that regard, you are very much a kindred spirit with Jordan Peterson. It, it's absolutely unbelievable how I agree with Jordan Peterson in so many ways. It is shocking. It, it, it's almost like I've found uh, my long-lost brother. I, I, have, I have yet to hear a single sentence by Jordan Peterson that I disagree with. And you see, our influences are the same. Um, we, we, we explored you know, the resources of the library, but ended up being very much drawn to the work of Eric Neumann, the Jungian analyst. Right. And not only, not only that, but the same book, uh, The Origins and History of Consciousness. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're talking to Camille Pallier, and her latest book is called Provocations. You say you identify as a transgender woman. Um, certainly that is not visible, at least from images I have seen of you, uh, in dress. Uh, do you mean it's more, it's more evolved than just simply the, the camouflage that one wears in, in their chosen particular clothing? In what way do you see yourself as transgender? Well, I, I, I think it is, it is in fact the source of a lot of my work or my sense of being outside the entire social system, the gender system. I, I think that okay, it's intellectually, a, you see yourself as transgender, then? Uh, no, no, I, I think I have uh, absolutely um, a gender dysphoria, and, and that 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 was signaled from my earliest childhood and my how drawn I was to male 
costumes. I mean, the only w- woman I ever uh, was in, in Halloween was uh, Alice in Wonderland. Was I, cause I was in, I was absolutely in love with those Lewis Carroll books when I was a, a toddler. Um, but I, might, you know, I was constantly drawn to to male um, clothing. Never thought of myself in any way as female. I mean, that, that that's okay. exactly it. I so, never so identified. So I'm, I'm risking the person I adore now rejecting me and not liking me okay <laughs> you, you like candor so i'm going to be quite honest with you okay one can see marlena dietrich dressed as a man and would undisputably say she's incredibly sexy female uh one can say the same of if you will um uh, certainly uh hepburn uh very often dressed in slacks and say you know indisputably this is a female i don't mean to offend you but you strike me incredibly as a strong female with an ardent um, passion for life and an exactitude for analysis, uh, but, but feminine. And I, I don't know if that's a, an offense to you. That's what I mean. I, I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just curious to know, is that offensive? Well, no, it's not, not offensive at all. It's just that I am um, certainly most aware of my dysfunction right? when I have to shop for clothing. You know, I'm just going along. I'm a, I'm a teacher. I'm a writer. I'm perfectly fine in my, in, you know, in my vocation. Then I go to the shopping mall to have to shop for clothing. And I, and I cannot express to you okay, the, the existential crisis and the angst that that provokes because I don't in today's fashions and so on I I do not see either in the women's department or the men's department clothing that is, that I that I can identify with so I, I always feel like a stranger in a strange land right? I don't I don't feel I'm really part now but, but you see I know biology and I know that this is an illusion. This is, a, this is a, for whatever reason, who knows how it started. Maybe they'll eventually find that there's something, you know, in, in the, you know, in, in the womb, with the, the hormones are not bathing the baby's tissues correctly. Who knows what? Okay? But uh, there's, there is something, I've not since, not from the very start, okay, have I ever identified with being a, a girl? Okay? At the same time, I know I'm not a man. I'm not. I'm, I'm not a boy. And I also know biology, and I know that every cell of my body, uh, except for blood, okay, will 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 be coded, okay, for female. That 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 is actually my you know my biological gender. I accept that, I, and I, I don't, and I fail to see why the transgender movement has to reject okay, the, the the simple facts of biology. Okay? Uh, so I I, I, I I say okay we can I, I agree with Jermaine Greer. Okay, you cannot call someone a woman who was actually born a man and who every every cell of that person's body is coded male. I say trans man, trans woman. Okay, great respect, great honor. Okay, but. Don't tell me, okay, that 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 you are somehow, okay, uh, uh, you know, that 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 your um, your birth gender is not the correct one. That 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 um, you know, there's this, this phrase that gender is now assigned at birth. Assigned, well, her, okay, her, her uh, assigned when the when the when the when the physical organs, mm-hmm. you know, the physical organs can be can be mismatched. It is true, okay, that you can have. Errors right, that are made at birth uh, that are then uh, at the point of puberty. Okay, then you know th- that. But these are such rare examples, tiny, tiny examples in the totality of human births. Well, her argument is you can't call anyone a true woman who hasn't menstruated, and uh, she kind of leaves it there, which is uh, <laughs> an arguable well, that, point. That's the great, wonderful Greer rhetoric. She she goes she she, 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 she doesn't hesitate to, to inflame. <laughs> 
Our show is called Watching America, as you know, and our guest is Camille Pallier. We are honored with her presence. Her latest book is called Provocations. And um, it's, it's a shame, in a sense, that just for simply expressing one's thoughts, you are considered necessarily to be provoking people. But that is the case with our current guest. She's also uh, very big in my home country and around the world, so much so as is evidenced by the fact that the British Film Institute asked you to write a piece on Alfred Hitchcock, The Birds. And I should tell you that, like you, Camille, I'm a university professor and I'm actually a film professor. And I first of all want to thank you for breaking the code of, uh, of, of this ob- obstruction of academic writing regarding film to the extent that we cannot have anything in chronological order. And I've longed for years to see somebody write about a film scene by scene in chronological order and you've delivered. So yet again, as I frequently do when I read your stuff, I'm going, yes, 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 yes. What made you decide to do it in a straight chronology? Well, I, I appreciate your remarks, because when that, when that book was released, the film journals panned it. And what one said, this book does nothing, okay? meaning there was no theory in it. Okay? <laughs> this book does nothing. It only pays attention to every single detail. No, every it does everything. From it's, beginning it's, to end. It's one of the best tombs I've ever read on film. I mean, I've got to tell you how much I love the film, first of all. I, when, when I heard that you had done it, I said to myself, because, again, when you, when you uh, frankly, idolize somebody, when, when you uh, admire them so much, you think, oh, please don't screw this up. Please don't screw this up. So I tentatively opened it and read it, and I thought, yes, she's delivered yet again. I, I tell you how much this film means to me. I, I, I made, a, a, a for a couple of years, an annual pilgrimage to Bodega Bay, all right? I'm oh, t- totally, oh, completely oh, entranced really? with Suzanne Plachette and Tippi Hedren. <laughs> so when, when my one of my favorite writers handles this material and does it so well, it was glorious. So how did you handle the criticism? Well, well let, let me be clear. The, the, the BFI contacted me and asked, asked me to contribute to that series and, and, and asked me what, what film would I like to write on. And I said, The Birds. All right? and, I, and, so, and then when, when, when the book was uh, released, I, I was in London for that, and I was on the BBC, uh, BBC program. And, I, and this is, was a thrill of my lifetime. The announcer began by saying, the most important thing about this book is the reclamation of Tippi Hedren. And I said, oh, that's, thank you. That's exactly right. Because, because in, all, in all the research I had done, okay, there was not a single word anywhere okay, praising Tippi Hedren's yes, performance. Instead, yes. if, if she was present, it would be about, um, oh, well, it wasn't, he, she wasn't the, the person that Hitchcock wanted, or it was about her abuse at Hitchcock's hands as, you know, as, an, as an actress. Right? But there was nothing about, about the, the power of her actual performance. So I was delighted to write in also to, to be able to praise Suzanne Plachette's performance. I mean, it, it is like absolutely amazing, the two of them mm. the working together. Mm. It's absolutely a brilliant duo. I mean, everything about, and also, I, 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 I want to take credit for having discovered a shot which goes back so quickly that no one had ever noticed it, where Tippi Hedren is trapped in the telephone booth, okay, outside the diner as all chaos breaks loose outside. Right? And she puts up her hands against the glass, and you see her perfect nails, her perfect red yes. nails. And Hitchcock obviously had attended that, so it's absolutely magnificent. So the BFI was able to isolate that image, and I I consider that one of my great discoveries.
For those just joining us again, Camille Pallia is literally here. I'm so thrilled and delighted. Her latest book is called Provocations, and it's just one more in a series of, uh, of just absolutely stirring writing that she has done over the years. And she has uh, put basically all of her essays together into one volume, and it's an utter delight to go through it. And the chapter where I was also enthralled is with three, free speech uh, on the modern campus. Um, I... Um, rebuked sometimes in the classroom for the most benign, innocent usage of words. I, I used the word gypsy uh, not so long ago, and I was rebuked by a student because I was told it was a pejorative term and that I was causing trigger mechanisms in them and upsetting them. Um, we have reached a, a complete point of lunacy beyond belief, and we are being held hostage, I think, by, uh, as you say as well, uh, complete neurotics. What's been your experience? Well, I, I have been lucky to have been at, a, at art schools for most of my entire career, and we have not really had much of the PC tide until recently. Okay, so all of a sudden, it's arrived. As, as, it's like a national um, movement, obviously. I mean, I, you see, I, I think that it, it all has to be traced back to the overgrowth of the administrator class, so the bureaucracy of the universities. And I was really uh, probably the first to send up a warning about it in the Times Literary Supplement in England, my 1992 piece about corruption of the humanities, where I I was talking about this uh, you know this new master race of this incredibly swollen bureaucracy that was um, you know that was visible simply on the horizon back then, and it's it's gotten worse and worse and worse. So I I think that as I look back through history, that uh, uncontrolled bureaucracy is often the cause of the fall of civilizations going back to ancient Egypt and ancient Mesopotamia and so on. I think that's what we're seeing again. It is a really a kind of a cancerous growth. Once it starts, it mm. cannot be stopped without a revolution. And eventually, every bureaucracy simply saps the lifeblood out of political and, in this case, academic institutions. Well, I'll give you an example of how absurd it's it's become. I, I taught a class on the development of sitcoms and its history. So it was uh, it was the development of the history of sitcoms from the radio days going back to the 1940s to contemporary times. And I showed an episode of uh, All in the Family with Carol O'Connor, and and uh, uh, the reaction from the students was was absolutely astonishing to me. And they were convinced that whoever produced it must be one of the most right wing people on earth. And when you say it's Norman Lear, for heaven's sake, who was the head and is the head of people for the American way. They just don't get it. They can't make that connection. And I think what's fundamental to this is now students do not realize that they come to university to change. That's the whole idea. You come to university to change and to entertain new ideas. But it's totally lost on them. Well, it's strange because when I got to college in the 1964, I mean, we we went out of our way to find the strange, the weird, the challenging, you know, the the individual voice, uh, and uh, and and yet, like identity politics, you know, came out of our our, our time when it once was once a, a vital concept, an authentically multicultural concept, and has now become sort of flash frozen, where people are now trapped in, within their own groups and can only think in terms of groups. Uh, I mean, true individualism is, is really being encouraged nowhere. 
One of the things I find very interesting about you is you are an avowed, uh, if one can use that phrase, atheist, and yet you're an advocate for the study of religion in universities and colleges. Uh, I happen to concur. I teach, for instance, uh, cinematography, and there's a shot known in, in cinema as a John the Baptist, which basically means that you put the chin of a character on the bottom of the frame deliberately as if their head has been severed. When I invoke the phrase John the Baptist, the students look at me nonplussed. They have no, not the slightest concept of who I'm speaking about. And I don't expect them to, to necessarily embrace Christianity, but they don't even have the simplest uh, assemble of cultural understanding of biblical tales whatsoever. And it's, it's left a great dearth, a great lack and void in their intellectual ability to make connections culturally. Well, I, I had exactly the same experience about 15 years ago in my, my um, Art of Song Lyrics course. Every time I taught the course, I dealt with the Negro spiritual Go Down Moses mm-hmm. as, uh, as an example of, of covert political statements in the time of slavery and so on. And so I was like, I was passed out the lyric and I, I played it. And I, it was such hard going. I couldn't, there was something wrong. I, I didn't know what it was. Why? why there was no, their, their faces were blank. There was no mm-hmm. understanding. Mm-hmm. Yes. It suddenly yes. hit me with horror. They did not recognize the name Moses. Right? Yes. Now, if you yes. if you have Western culture is in ruins. There is no Western culture without any sense of these foundational myth sagas, for heaven's sake. Right? Mm. You know, of of the past. People in the 1950s um, watching Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments okay, had had a better cultural understanding than than today's students, obviously, of something so important. Here's where Jordan Peterson also agrees. Um, he feels that that the that the human brain has a religious component uh, mm-hmm. constitutionally, mm-hmm. and I, I and I believe that too. So that's why I, I've written, okay, you know, better Jehovah than. Foucault, okay, because the <laughs> universities who have like pretend to be so uh, you know so cutting edge in terms of rejecting religious orthodoxy and so on, they've given themselves over to the worship of Michel Foucault. Yes. They, they, there's even a book called Saint Foucault. Or, so People will worship. They need something to worship. People need like, also a cosmic perspective. They need some encounter with the great realities of time and you know and 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 death and mortality. All, all these large issues. I said in the um, preface to my art book, Glittering Images, that secular humanism has failed. I said, you know, I, it, it, is, it, is, it, it has not succeeded. The, the, the children of the affluent upper middle class in the U.S. are a mess without religion. They're a mess. Okay? They, they are nervous. They, they need uh, tranquilizers. They're, they're, they're now off starting to sample LSD, you know, we have like marijuana about to be peddled to them and, and so on. What I'm saying is that religion gives you a sense of the universe, <laughs> and studying religion <laughs> expands the mind. I, I, yes, I'm an atheist, but I, I, I believe in all the religions. I believe that each of the great religions contains truths about human life. Um, I noted that you believe in astrology. I used to do astrological charts. That's how I met my wife 36 years ago. Um, and you're in Aries, as I believe. Uh, do you really subscribe to astrology? Uh, well, I, I, you know, I don't pay much attention to it right now, but, but certainly throughout college and graduate school, I became very interested in it. And actually, the way it started was that my very first week in college, I went into the college bookstore and picked up an astrology book and was amazed when I read the portrait of the Aries 
woman to Aries personality. It was everything about me that, that people had found impossible and intolerable for like the, my entire prior life. I, I, my, my mouth hung open. I had not, never seen such a portrait, okay, uh, that, as, as in this book. So then I, be, I began investigating it, and, um, you know, I made charts. I kept it in a folder, and I've, I've tried to compare, you know, its predictions with life pattern. Astrologers, by and large, say that there's an order to the cosmos. If there is an order to the cosmos, there has to be a first cause that created that cosmos, which, for lack of a better term, would be a god. How do you square that? Well, I, I think it's a bit fuzzy, okay, in my, my theory about things. Uh, but I, I sort of subscribe to animal nature, to great electromagnetic patterns okay, operating on the globe that allow um, you know, the geese to migrate, you know, that, that on occasion we get these stories about dogs or, you know, or even cats finding their owners, okay, across like 50-mile expanses and, and so on. I mean, I just think that, that, that there, are, there are physical components to, to life on Earth that, so would, uh, would, to which these, these cyclic patterns can be attributed. Would you agree with Richard Dawkins, then, that the concept of a god is a totally capricious, unpleasant kind of individual? Is, is that part of the disquieting element of a concept for God for you? Well, you know, my my current research project I've been doing for ten years is into Native American religious vision, uh, and I I feel very close to that view. It's really my view is almost close to animism. Okay, I, mm-hmm. I honestly mm-hmm. see a kind of vital principle and cyclic patterns operating in in nature. And I, I definitely have a, a religious feeling for nature, and unlike the, the great romantic poems, whether it's Wordsworth or Shelley and, and so on, I have a sense of the sublime. Okay. A sense of the of mm-hmm. the awesomeness of the earth, which is why I find completely ludicrous okay, the, the claims that carbon is going to poison us. I, I'm studying the great glacier, okay, that covered the, the, the top of North America, and that, that withdrew, uh, you know, ten thousand years ago. For heaven's sake, I mean, I lived in upstate New York, which it was carved by the glacier. So I, I I just have this sense of the of the grandeur of nature. It's almost like the um, the, the school of nineteenth century American uh, nature painting that where you get this kind of misty sense over the gorges of the, uh, you know, of the Catskills <laughs> and so on. So I, I, t- to me, astrology, um, it's, you know, it's incomplete. It's not, I don't, I don't rely on it in any way. I, I never was interested in the predictive parts of it. I was interested simply in, in the character analysis or personality types. I'm, I'm very interested in that, in the way that Jung is interested in, in types. Um, but I, I do think that um, the young people would profit from the study of religion in the way that we of the 60s did with all that influence uh, from the Zen Buddhism of the beat writers, and also um, there was an influx of Hinduism from, um, the, you know, the, it was that period where uh, the Beatles are playing the, the sitar, the birds, and so on. You're, you're getting that. There was a movement toward the East there that completely vanished, but I think that it gave a kind of global and, and indeed metaphysical perspective to, uh, to uh, 60s thinking. Final question on religion before we move on to other topics, and, and, and that is, if one were to visit your home right now, given that you were raised by an Italian family on both sides, maternal and paternal, would we find any accoutrements, uh, at least in terms of art, reminding us of the Roman Catholic Church? Is there a crucifix or rosary anywhere to be found, along with Indian artifacts? Oh, 
Well, I don't, I don't have things on display that, in that sense. It's true. I have a, a, a several Indian artifacts on my desk. Um, I'm a collector of mass cards with the, of, with the saints on them. Uh, I'd like to visit Catholic stores and, and look through their cards. Some of my favorite ones are, you know, St. Teresa of Avila. You know, that, that, mm-hmm. she's a great role model for me and so on. Well, the reason um, I ask is because my wife was, uh, uh, was raised Roman Catholic, and, and she um, diverted from Roman Catholicism later in her life. But I, I always sense and discern in her a, cent- a sense of mourning for the elements that reminded her of her former faith and the absence of it. And I just wondered, as, as again, coming from an Italian family, if you succumbed to the same sort of lilting sense of, oh, I remember that, and that was comforting even as a child. Well, I, I love to visit churches you know, that are adorned in the old style of... Um, the Baroque style, you know, of of uh, Southern European Catholicism or Mexican Catholicism, and some some of those you know, churches with their, uh, all the statues of the saints. I, I'm a great devotee of the saints. I've written how how little um, Jesus had an impact on me in, in my in my youth. Uh, I, you know, even in Ita- Italian culture, there's the Madonna and the Child. Okay, whereas you know, for the for Protestants of Northern Europe, it's really about Jesus, the Good Shepherd, who's like your equal, who walks and talks with you, and, and so on. Uh, so, but but the the saints, which are probably a vestige of the polytheism of the, you know the ancient Mediterranean, and mm-hmm, so on, mm-hmm. uh, have been have always had a, had a great attraction you know, for me. I, I I would just stare at the in church when I was tiny. Saint Michael the Archangel, Saint Sebastian with arrows in his body, Saint Cosmos and Damien, uh, look incredible, beautiful garments of green and gold and. Saint Lucy holding out her eyes on a plate and so on. And so I, um, there's, I might definitely have a kind of idolatrous, um, you know, subtext there in my in my consciousness. What is the attraction to Native Americanism? Well, actually, from the the release of my very first book, Sexual Persona, I got a couple of letters okay, from Native Americans back then in the early 1990s saying that my views of nature and sexuality seemed very close to the Native American visions. That was like the first, really, the first signal of it. Um, and uh, around 10 years ago, I just was walking okay, in the suburbs for exercise uh, near Philadelphia, you know, an area I had been living in at that point for 25 years, and I I suddenly began noticing rock formations that seemed odd to me. I began to explore, and I, to my astonishment, had to conclude that there were all kinds of signs of a Stone Age habitation in suburban Philadelphia that had not been recorded or, you know, or cataloged. And I, I, I'm very interested in large-scale art. I mean, I originally wanted to be an, an Egyptologist, you see. And, uh, mm-hmm. and all, all of a sudden, you know, with my experience of looking at uh, ancient art and, um, and Stone Age art, other places of the world, I began to notice all kinds of things, <laughs> modifications of the landscape, uh, mm-hmm. reshapings of large boulders and so on. I began noticing things that I, that I felt were... Highly significant. So again, I really have a have a sense of identification with the Native American point of view about nature, about weather systems, in particular. You know, we have the Thunderbird and and, and so on. Um, and uh, that's going to be my next book. It will be something about uh, Native American religion. And if he, people want to respect uh, Native American culture, the way to do it is not to treat Native Americans as 
victims, okay, is always always impose the victim model on, on everyone, okay, but rather to respectfully study the actual metaphysical system okay, of the Native American viewpoint. When you write, you say that you use uh, long writing with long pads, legal pads, you start, and then you will uh, cull from that material that you think is the best, and then you will eventually go to your computer to do it. Uh, you've also described it as, a, as one of the most miserable experiences, or words to that effect, and then the completion ecstasy. What makes you keep doing it? You know, I, I have to express. Okay, I, I have I have a lot to say, and and uh, it, you know it's too much for any other individual. It has to be via writing. Okay, so I I I'm overwhelmed with observations, and uh, and then of course I get um, you know people want, want me to write articles and so on. Yes, I write I, I write in long hands on uh, on real paper, and I I don't understand why people think that writing on um, a laptop on a computer is superior to that. I I feel that the it, for my writing, that the that the body has to be involved. That it, it's it's a muscular thing, okay, coming from the wrist, the arm, you know, the shoulder, and so on. I I might be able to write um, an email interview, you know, on the um, computer, or you know, something that that there is no um, artistic element in, you know, at, at all, no, no no personal signature. But I I think that people who are writing on a computer are making a terrible mistake. I I really do. You're losing something of the individual voice by doing that. You say that you often write to music. I know you love grand-scale, epic, cinematic scores. Do you, do you also listen to Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground at the same time? I mean, what kind of music do you typically listen to? Well, I, I generally would not be listening to rock music or, or anything with lyrics while, um, while I would be writing because, you know, that would, that would, that would interfere with the words for me. Um, but, uh, yes, I, I, I mean, I wrote all of Sexual Personae, uh, which is this massive, you know, 700-page book, with different music for different chapters. Uh, for example, the Emily Dickinson chapter, for some reason, <laughs> I was drawn to Puccini's Madame Butterfly. And I, ah, and I took yes. me years before I quite understood it. And I thought, oh, it's, it's, be, it's because Emily Dickinson herself was so solitary in, in, mm-hmm. the, way that, um, in the way that Madame Butterfly is in, in, in an opera. Uh, but yes, I, you know, certain, certain, certain kinds of writing require big music, Wagner, Brahms, and so on. And, and others, something quieter, uh, you know, like Satie or, or, or WC's piano pieces and, and so on. Right. I must ask you, if you could say to the world, would you please get this one thing right about Camille Pallia, which most of you don't get right, what would it be? Um, that uh, I've been an individualist since I was a preschooler, all right, and that this is not this is not a, a mask that has been donned for publicity purposes or anything else. Uh, plus, I think that I'm extremely private. I seem to have you know a, a large public profile because of of the web and so on. But um, I'm actually super super private, uh, and um, and you know I go out on the road to, to for my publisher to support my books and so on. But uh, you know I love solitude and. Um, I think that's that's probably the one misperception that that is a, that I enjoy uh, being a public provocateur. But I'm I'm simply here as I'm sort of minding the the great repository of ideas and images and and trying to goad people into taking responsibility for themselves. I feel that every individual is responsible for his or her 
enlightenment. And to do that, you have to go out and try to find the books and the voices, okay, that will go against the grain. And I'm, I'm one of them. I'm one of the people who, you know, who is like signaling where the, the, the solidified uh, areas are in our current uh, conceptual system. And we need to blow them up, okay, and, and free the energy that's contained and imprisoned at the moment in this horribly, suffocatingly PC era. If you're listening and just joining us, you're listening to Watching America, and my special guest is Camille Pallia, and her latest book is called Provocations. Camille, if I may ask you, being the singular voice often, uh, marching to the rhythm of your own drummer, so to speak, uh, how do you deal with the loneliness? Oh, I, well, I don't feel lonely at all. I, I feel besieged by, by besieged. <laughs> Yes, by people wanting my assistance, my help, my feedback. My, to be on their radio no, programs. Oh no, no, that's quite <laughs> this, is, this is a positive pleasure. No, I know it's like people. You know, because I've written on so many topics, uh, people all over the world want me to weigh in. I know on their work, and I, I, in an ideal life with endless time, of course, one would want to. But uh, no, I, I, you know, I. I have to be very, very strict in preserving my own uh, privacy. I want to tell you, Camille, this has been one of the highlights of my life to talk to you. I hope on future occasions I'll get to talk to you again, perhaps when new works come out. Um, Her latest book is called Provocations. I have never read a single thing by this lady that has not absolutely completely entranced me, challenged me, made me think, sometimes unsettled me, but also made me very, very grateful. For all of us here at Watching America. I just want to thank you so much, Camille. And again, uh, I say this unabashedly, without reservation, this is a great read for everybody. Please get Provocations by Camille Pallier. You've been listening to Watching America. Our special guest has been Camille Pallier. Our theme music for Watching America is provided by Razorlight. Watching America is a WHRV production, made possible in part by the kind and thoughtful contributions of listeners like you. Many thanks to our sound engineer, Todd Washburn, producer extraordinaire, Paul Bebo, senior producer and recording editor, Gina Gamboni, executive producer, Chuck Dowd, chief of content, Heather Mazzoni, and CEO, Bert Schmidt. I am watching America's creator and host, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings.